Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America? The land of the free and the home of the brave. Wake up, America. Wake up. The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we're exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in such a divided country. Look, today we got a special episode. I'm very happy about this. We are bringing you a flashback from the archives. Uh, This is never-before-aired audio of a conversation that was recorded with my friend, the comedian, the actor, the author, Chelsea Handler. We did this way back in 2018. This is before I had the Uncommon Ground podcast. It was actually being done for a documentary that Chelsea was doing about race and white privilege. It was called Hello Privilege, It's Me, Chelsea. So I was one of the people interviewed for that documentary. And there's stuff that was not in the documentary that I wanted you to hear because I love the conversation that we have. I love Chelsea. But remember, what you're about to hear is 2018. Now, not that long ago, but it was before COVID. It was before the murder of George Floyd. It was before the 2020 presidential election, the insurrection, all that kind of stuff. So a lot has happened in these past four years. But the conversation we have is still useful. It's still constructive. It's still incredibly relevant. Now, because it's four years ago, I want to contextualize a couple of references just to give you a fresher course. First, we talk a little bit about Brett Kavanaugh. Now, today, Brett Kavanaugh is a Supreme Court justice. But at that time, in 2018, Kavanaugh had not yet been confirmed. And Dr. Christine Blasey Ford had just come forward with some very serious allegations uh, about sexual abuse and misconduct and other stuff that happened when they were in high school together and also talking about you know, drinking and drug abuse, all that type of stuff. That's relevant in this conversation. Also, Chelsea makes a reference to Barbecue Becky. Now, if you don't remember, this was a news story that went viral in 2018. There was a white woman in Oakland, California, who called the police to report a few black folks who were barbecuing by the lake in Oakland. So those are two things that were, you know, a little bit from the past. Everything else we literally could have talked about today. <laughs> it's so relevant. It's so timely. And, you know, we obviously had a real blast talking to each other. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation with Chelsea Handler right after this quick break. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Okay, so I am doing a documentary on white privilege, and I need to talk to white people about their behavior. I've met some white people. They have behaviors. Okay. Well, can you expand on that? Because I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I think this is a tough conversation for anybody because I think any human being, your own narration of your own story is, you're the protagonist against a bunch of obstacles, overcoming them, trying to make your life work. And the idea that anybody is actually running up the up escalator (laughs) and that there's something helping them along the way, it just... You know, it's hard to accept because it doesn't feel that way. You're always more present to the obstacles uh, in front of you than the opportunities surrounding you. And so it's almost like, well, you're taking away my medal. Like, I got first place and you're trying to take it away from me. And I worked hard for that medal. But it is, in fact, just a case that it's easier for some people than others. And it doesn't mean that anybody has it easy. It just means that some people can have it easier than others. For instance, when I was at law school, I went to Yale Law School. I know, you bring it up all the time. It's like, I get it. You know I didn't go to college. No, no, I, I, I'm, it's it's the proudest thing in my dad's life that he grew up in a shotgun shack in Orange Mound, Memphis, and his kid got a chance to go to Yale Law School. And in in his memory, I'm happy to raise it. But I saw stuff there that I talk about all the time. Like Brett Kavanaugh. Well, I mean, Brett Kavanaugh was three years ahead of me. So I saw people like, like the Brett Kavanaugh's of the world. I went to school with those people. I saw people like Brett Kavanaugh do every drug, drink whatever, snort whatever, say whatever, do whatever. Nobody ever called the police one time on any of those parties. And yet three blocks away, uh, poor black kids in a housing project had the police calling them every day for doing fewer drugs with less money than the privileged kids at Yale. And even at Yale, there was a sense that the black kids, we better not do any of that stuff because there'd be zero tolerance for us. And yet the other kids, maybe they weren't going to go to prison. They would go to rehab. The poor black kids in the housing projects went to prison. All of them got arrested. They all have criminal records. And many of them went to prison for doing the exact same behavior. One set of kids goes to prison. The other set of kids winds up on the Supreme Court. Now, race has a lot to do with that. It's inconceivable that you would have, you know, the kinds of debauchery that a Brett Kavanaugh was engaged in engaged in by an African-American kid in that same town without there being some consequences. The shocking thing for Brett Kavanaugh was that there were never any consequences. I mean, you see him? He was like, hey, I, I, I worked hard. I, I, how dare you? How dare you? Yeah, exactly. Right? So privilege is not bad. Entitlement is bad. There's a difference. Privilege, you can't help having no privilege. You can't help having privilege. It's just a part of the package. Everybody kind of gets a certain, you know, certain cards dealt to them. Turns out I'm a very privileged person. I'm male. I'm heterosexual. I'm well-educated. I'm well-paid. I happen to be African-American. But on the privilege, you know, I got a bunch of privileged cards in my deck. It's the entitlement. It's when you then say, not only are these privileges, 
I'm owed this. This is my right. How dare you challenge it? That's when we have a problem. If you have privilege and you acknowledge it, great, because then you can use it to help other people gain those same privileges. My problem with privilege, I don't have enough. I like to have more privilege because I want to use it to help my family and to help others. When privilege curdles into entitlement, then we've got a big problem because then you have powerful people who think they're victims. Powerful people who think they're victims are dangerous. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's all stuff I think we're all, uh, you know, for me, I'm learning all about that in the last couple of years. It's become so apparent that people feel like they have the right to things. But what do you think liberals can be doing a better job of with regard to white privilege and with regard to evening the uh, playing field for people of color? Look, I was born in, in 68, so I was a part of like the first and the last generation where people really tried integration. I was maybe you know, one or two years behind the first truly integrated kindergarten class in my home county. We really did grow up together, that one little pulse that I was a part of. And, you know, frankly, it's, it's a little bit easier for some of us, I think. The problem you have now is you have a lot of people in their 20s and 30s, they've really never been mixed up together. The schools resegregated very quickly into you know, private schools versus public schools. And people just don't have as much contact with each other. It is hard to be a champion of somebody in the abstract. In 93, I moved to the Bay Area. I moved in with a woman named Patty Byrne. She was uh, Afro-Haitian lesbian quadriplegic. Okay? So just... Getting up in the morning for her was a massive ordeal. I suddenly realized myself, if you don't have a curb cut, you've got to go two blocks out of your way to find one. Because this much space with a mechanical chair, you can't get up over it. I am a passionate disability rights activist. Why? Because of Patty. Because I know somebody. And then when I moved out of living with Patty, I moved in with a, a lesbian couple, Allison and Judy. This is in the mid-90s, so you know, even you know, civil unions was radical, let alone marriage equality, let alone transgender stuff. What they had to go through on a regular basis, even in San Francisco, I said, this is ridiculous. And I became a passionate person for those issues because of Allison and Judy. If you don't have a Patty, if you don't have an Allison and Judy, if you don't know an African-American who's raising an African-American kid in this world, it's all abstract. So I think the most important thing to do is it sounds corny, but it's like we got to diversify our friend set. We've got to begin to ask ourselves questions about where do we show up and why do we show up? There are so many white activists and they just go and say, well, listen, I'm working on my issue and I want more diversity on my issue. So I'm going to go and find some brown people and thump them in the head and ask them, why don't they come work on my issue? Because I want my issue to be more diverse. That is not the way to do it, <laughs> okay? The way to do it is there's something wrong with the way I'm doing my work because only people who look like me show up. Rather than go and ask others to aid me, let me figure out how I can go and be of help to others. When people show up to say, look, I would like to be useful, I'll set up the chairs, I'll stand in the back, I'll write a check, I'll stand in the front. How can I be useful? You begin to develop trust. 
then it's not so weird. If you've come to 10 of my events and you say, now will you come to one, it's not weird for me to say yes mm -hmm. to come to you. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that's not going on with progressives. First of all, I don't think that we know each other well enough. We talk about each other more than we talk to each other across these different lines. And then when somebody decides that they're going to, that gonna, my group's going to be diverse, and they go out and start trying to recruit. They say, well, it's hard. It's, yeah, it's hard because it's like going up to the bar and starting the conversation with, can we sleep together? I think it's important. It's like, yeah. can you get to know me? Can you ask me other questions? You know, like you're, you're so agenda-driven that it becomes, uh -huh. you know, almost a caricature of itself. So, you know, I, I think that I believe a lot in relationships, personal relationships, as the, the, the real only trustworthy foundation for real political work. Well, like that's because I know you're friends with a lot of conservatives. Like yes. we've been doing outreach for this film for to talk to conservatives, to talk to people like Ben Shapiro, to talk to people like Corey Lewandowski or or, you know, Steve Bannon, people who are, you know, they have part of this kind of uproar, you know, this movement that's happening. And no one wants to talk about it. No white conservatives want to talk about white privilege. So what's the issue with that? How do I get those people? to talk about white privilege. I want to learn more. And we're talking, it's a it, white privilege is a problem among white people. So who better to discuss it yet? The people that espouse it. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you, here's the thing. If they were doing a documentary and they wanted to talk about insane PC culture, ruining America, you might not be as enthusiastic about returning that phone call. Right. In other words, the very definition of the problem, white privilege <laughs> Sort of like the assumption and the conclusion all in one. A big part of what their deal is, is the denial of all that. I mean, that's a big part of, 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 their, of their identity and their cause is, as you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but it's just, look, everybody's an individual. Quit your bitching. Work hard and it'll work out. Anybody who's off of that program is just wants some freebies and wants some pity and we're not giving it to them. They think that's a moral position. The most important thing is, is to remember, everybody thinks they're the good guy. Nobody says, I'm the villain in this movie. <laughs> you know, that's not anybody's story. So in their view, they say, look, if we start going down this road of passing out pity tickets to people based on their sob story and their group sob story, even worse, they won't develop their own individual God-given talents fully. They won't develop the grit and the determination to push through and will create a society of entitlement in the other direction for the people at the bottom. And that's actually immoral because it'll make them weaker people. And it's, it's not, and, and by the way, it's not fair to us because then we got to give up stuff that we, we earned the hard way. So for me, I think in my interactions with them, I try to figure out where is the actual common ground and start from there. The addiction crisis is common ground. The criminal justice system, actually, the prison system, which wastes so much taxpayer money and creates worse outcomes for everybody, is turning out to be common ground for people. And then just what happens to poor kids in Appalachia, Chicago, whatever else, that's common ground. So those are the three areas I always try to start with. Addiction, convictions of people you know, behind bars, and poor kids. But it's the last domino to fall for most white conservatives to really own up to the fact that, you know, it's not equal, it's not fair, and, and black kids do have worse chances no matter how, how hard they work. But it, for whatever reason, that's the last domino to fall. 
I think a lot of people, white people, say that's not our problem. We're not we're not responsible for slavery. Why are we being blamed for something that happened, you know, a hundred years ago? Why is that our problem? Yeah. What do you what do you say to people like that? Mm-hmm. Well, look, I tell you, I understand that, and what I would say is, I see things happening that don't have much to do with a hundred years ago. Here's what I have noticed: you get a resume from somebody. And their name is Dushandria Jefferson. Your initial response isn't, oh, great, we need another Dushandria Jefferson. Your initial response is, well, where the hell did this person go to school? And why the hell should we hire this person? It's one neuron, it fires quickly, it doesn't get a chance to say anything out loud. That's what you gotta take responsibility for. Right. That, that, that there are micro decisions that we make every day that didn't show up. At the end of the year, your micro decisions with regard to people of color has an impact. Look at who you're hiring. Who's your lawyer? Who's your accountant? Who is in your home every day? Who's on the wall? It has an impact. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that you're, you're now a member of the Ku Klux Klan, but it's to say that we all can take more responsibility for those choices and to challenge ourselves. And to me, honestly, what I say, I think we're selling this wrong to white people. I think I hear liberals saying to white people, here's the deal. You suck. And because you suck, I'm miserable. I need you to suck less so I can be happier. Would you please sign up? This is not a great sales pitch. I, I, for some reason, there are not millions and millions of people lining up for this. I think for me, the sales pitch is different. The sales pitch is you're awesome. But you're about to lose out because there's all these other people who are also awesome that you don't know how to win with. You don't know how to partner with and get more cool stuff going for yourself. And if you want to win in the next round, there's a massive opportunity to partner with awesome people, but you need some some skills you don't have yet. When you get those skills, it's going to be awesome. I think it's more important to sell the upside of being able to partner with anybody in a global world and it turns out nobody feels oppressed if you say you're going to the bank, you want a loan. To get the loan, you've got to dress this way, talk this way, blah, 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 blah. People go, that's fine because there's money there and I want that. Mm-hmm. So I'll do whatever you tell me to do. If you say, listen, in order to work with people of color, in order to work with women, you've got to do this and do that. I'm oppressed. This is PC hell. Somebody stop this. I, I don't. That's because you don't see the value of the outcome yet. If somebody says, in order for you to go to a top school, you've got to take this test and do this thing or whatever, that was fine, it's great. Because you, we've already been socialized to see the value of, of getting a bank loan or whatever. We haven't told people the value, I think passionately enough and well enough, of having like a dope set of friends. Visceral, dramatic, uncompromising. The third generation Range Rover Sport redefined sporting luxury and is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable model yet. Combining assertive on-road performance with signature refinement, Range Rover Sport communicates power and agility. Dynamic by design, it delivers an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure, while the purposeful cockpit-like driving position of Range Rover Sport sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Design your Range Rover Sport 
at LandRoverUSA.com. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Okay, so what about people like Barbecue Becky? What about these people who make a, you know, whether it's a microaggression or a bigger one, calling the police on black people, you know, it happens repeatedly all over the country all the time. Their lives can be destroyed. Yeah. Do you think that's appropriate? Do, what, what, what do you think the appropriate measure is for that? Because that doesn't feel like it's helping us move forward either. The clap back of your life is over. Yeah. They didn't kill a black person. They yeah. acted badly and they could learn from that. Yeah. I have a hard time on this particular question. In other words, if you're white, you can pull out your cell phone and essentially order the incarceration or assassination of a black person whenever you want it. Just that's the black person who did something bad. And that person minimally can get arrested, possibly beaten up, possibly killed. That's an important power. That's a power people should take seriously. And when people don't, and one in a million of them winds up getting blown up on social media, I struggle with it. I don't know what other option I've got. It's not illegal to call the police on somebody you think is committing a crime. You know, the person's deliberately making a false police report. This person robbed my house and they didn't do it. But to say, you know, I, I, I suspect a crime, that's not illegal. So my, my problem is I don't know what option the black community has um, being subjected to this when there's no, there's no legal recourse. So the only recourse that we have is public exposure and shaming so that somebody might eventually feel, geez, maybe I should think twice before doing this because these people do have an option. So I have a hard time knowing how to deal with it. Should the person videotape the person, but then not post it because they're afraid that they may hurt that person, but that person's perfectly, you know, the next day may do the same behavior again. This is the kind of just set of moral dilemmas that people who want justice find ourselves in. So I don't have a good answer. Listen, when you're an African-American boy, everybody thinks you're adorable and amazing, mostly until you're like 10. And then something happens and it's like the whole world just turns on you. And everywhere you go, you are presumptively a bad guy. You have to prove that you're not. Or if this is say, screw it, and you just decide, I'm going to be, because it doesn't matter, I can't win this game. And you feel like you're going crazy, because you see white kids go into a store, 
and they get treated well and nobody bothers them. And you walk into the store and it's like, what the hell are you doing here? It's like, I'm trying to buy a Snickers bar. Like, why am I being, you know, treated this way? And it's, it's a scarring experience and it's a demoralizing experience and it's an everyday experience. And you're constantly afraid that somebody is going to bring in the authorities to deal with you. They're going to call the principal. They're going to call the, the, the cops. They're going to call somebody and you're going to be obliterated. And so that's a hard thing for people to understand, but it's a, it's a daily, daily lived experience. And I remember when my son was born, I was in my mid thirties and I had to go to the store. So I strapped him on this little tiny, like burrito sized person. And I went to a store and everybody saw me and they smiled. It was the first time that happened since I was a child. I went to a store and people were nice to me. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not a threat. I have this little small person. And I was like, I'm not crazy. Like, people treat me bad. So, like, I think that having any recourse to be able to show this is how we're being treated, I understand why people post. It, it, It was a huge moment for me. Because you're like, well, everybody say, they say they're not racist. They say it's all over. But you have the sneaking suspicion that it's not over <laughs> and that you are being treated differently. And that's why I think when people post those videos and get so upset is that it's just finally some little bit of proof that what we go through isn't fair. But I don't know the right answer unless we can have this, a deeper conversation, which is what, what I hope you're trying to do. Um, I know that you're, you're married to a white woman and you have mixed children. I mean, obviously it's impacted you in every way, but how, what, what are some things that you can share with me that are stark observations? Mm-hmm. Well, I have been married uh, to a white woman. We're, we're uh, separated now, but it's been the most incredible learning experience for both of us. I realize that there's a whole other like culture where we don't have to worry about white people all the time you can like have plans yeah you know what i mean <laughs> and, like dreams and aspirations and like knowledge about things it's an amazing experience and i think that for her like i mean she's you know she's raising two black boys in los angeles and i think for her it's just been a, a transformative experience because she is constantly having to, to fight these battles of people making the worst possible assumptions about our sons. Now, our our sons are beautiful and they're brilliant and they're amazing. They really are not bad kids. But every other year, there's some teacher that's decided that one of our boys is the problem kid in the class. And it's not true. And so she's always been liberal and anti-racist, but it's now, it's bone deep for her. I mean, it's bone deep for her. And increasingly, I think she's more of the radical militant mom (laughs) and because i'm constantly trying to figure out the other direction i think i'm increasingly more um understanding of how tough it is for white people to to self-criticize look it's hard to self-criticize anyway nobody would say i did it it was me so it's a character question and well also nobody wants to sit there and go yeah that's racist i'm i just i'm racist i did this is inured in your system you know for years and years of everything that suggested that you were talking about yeah nobody wants to go the defense is right there at the surface all the time it's like no i didn't mean it that way it's like it doesn't matter how you meant it that's how it came across and that's how it landed on the other person and it's a skill set issue do you know how many skill sets i had to develop 
coming out of nowhere in rural West Tennessee to be able to survive at an Ivy League school and survive in the Obama White House and survive on national television. We had to learn a lot of stuff. I just want you to learn more stuff. It's just a skill set issue. There's a way to say stuff. There's a way to think about stuff that will just make it easier for you to be successful in, in having a great life. Here's the thing. I want white people to be more awesome. And the only way you got to be more awesome in a world like this is to be able to deal with more kinds of people. And it is racist if you say, I'm willing to make all kinds of accommodations to deal with these people, and I don't complain. The banker, the college president, they're all kind of people who I see as worthy and I see as valuable. I'll make accommodations for them, and I won't complain. I won't even notice it. But if I have to make an accommodation for a black person or an Hispanic person or for a woman, I'm going to complain. Now, now we're in the domain of racism and sexism because now it's been called to your attention that uh, just like everything else, an adjustment needs to be made and you resent it and you hate it. That lets me know that you are one up in a power hierarchy. And when you're one up in a power hierarchy, you tend to resent the demands of the people below you. When you're one down, you tend to respect those demands. And so you now, at least subconsciously, you know you're in a power hierarchy and you're being a butthead. Don't be a butthead. Treat everybody the same. Make the accommodations. We'll all be fine. Like, for instance, if you and I were walking down the street and we decided to go get a sandwich and you didn't have your wallet and I bought you a sandwich for 10 bucks, 10 bucks, 10 bucks. I bought you a $10 sandwich. A week later, you wouldn't even remember. If though, while we are eating the sandwich, you notice I'm stealing a dollar from you out of your purse, you will not only you know, get up and leave, 20 years from now, you'll say, Dan Jones stole a dollar from me. Now look, you're up nine. You're up nine bucks in this in relationship. That's an interesting way to look at a okay? robbery. I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, like, but just think about that. Losing $1, you remember for 20 years. Gaining $10, you won't remember for two days. Loss is hard. Any perception of loss for the human brain is hard and it's memorable. Gain, people don't appreciate. Loss, people do register. And so I think it's important for us to know we are asking white people to do stuff that's emotionally hard. We're asking people to do, people to do stuff that's psychologically hard. doesn't mean they get to not do it. But it does mean that the way that we approach people, when you ask somebody to pick up a one-pound dumbbell, it's, it's one kind of request. If it's 50 pounds or 100 pounds, it's a different kind of request. You still got to pick it up. It's a different kind of request. I do think we're asking people to do stuff that's emotionally and psychologically hard, and they have to do it, but it's hard. People say, well, you can't say that. You're coddling them. You're coddling white fragility, blah, blah, blah. I'm not trying to coddle anybody. I want to challenge people, but I want to challenge people in a way that honors the fact that it's not easy to do what I'm asking them to do, even though I insist that they do it. Do you have any... Uh Advice for Chelsea as she goes on this journey? I think you're doing great. Um, How do I not get in trouble with black people? I've only shot one day and I already did something where I got in trouble. You can get in trouble. That's okay. I'm good at getting in you trouble. Get in trouble. Here's, here's the thing. Somebody has to take risks in this country. I am so sick of everybody playing in their little corners, doing whatever their little tribe told them was cool yesterday. And by the way, it changes every day. They move the goalpost every day, so you can't possibly keep up. I, I go to the Trump White House once a week to try to get something done for federal prisoners, for, for, for human beings who are incarcerated in our federal system. I've been called every name in the book by the liberals. Uncle Tom, 
in the sunken place, all this stuff. I haven't met a single person in federal prison calling me Uncle Tom when I'm in there fighting for them. Mm-hmm. They're saying, thank you. And could you do it more? There will be somebody who's white who's mad at you, who's black who's mad at you, whatever. There's going to be a lot more people who are going to be like, you know what? I never thought about that. Oh, you know what? I didn't know that. You know what? I'm going to share this with my friend. The good that you do is not going to be rewarded immediately. Whatever little mistake you make will be pounced on immediately. And that's how everybody's being disciplined in this dysfunction. We're being disciplined into a level of dysfunction because the grace that the liberals say that they have is gone. We're supposed to be the people who are the big-hearted, open-minded, loving, forgiving people. We've become what we're fighting. That's the danger with the liberals. We are becoming what we're fighting. We're becoming intolerant, victims who don't take responsibility for our own power. That's what Trump is. He's an intolerant victim who takes no responsibility. But now we're becoming that way. And the main way we don't take responsibility for our power is, as a black person, I can hurt you because you're liberal and you care. If you're a racist, you wouldn't, I can hurt you. If, I call, if, I, if you're a racist and I say you're a racist, you say, aha, see, you're just playing the race card and you'll go on with your life. It won't matter to you at all. If you're a liberal and I say you're a racist, you'll think about it for the next 20 years. I've got power to hurt you mm. that I've got to take responsibility for. But I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to leave you damaged because I've been damaged. And this is where we've gotten lost. Oppressed people have a responsibility to our oppressors. Nobody wants to talk about that anymore. That was Dr. King. That was Mandela. That was Gandhi. Now it's like, no, no, I got no responsibility for anything but my upset. I'm upset and fuck you. And that's it. And as long as everybody has that point of view, the Trumps win because that's his game. Mm, Yeah. That's his game. And so you're doing something that's really important. You're, You're sticking your neck out. You're going to get misunderstood. There are people who, who have podcasts and blogs that are just going to attack you for being a white girl who did it wrong. That's in the contract. It's not even in fine print. It's in bold print. And you sign it anyway. And that's a good thing. Great. Thank you, Van. All righty. Thank you. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door. I'm really glad I got to share that conversation with you. And I'm also really grateful to Chelsea Handler just for taking a chance, you know, raising her hand you know, trying to use her platform to start a tough conversation. And what's amazing to me is that was four years ago. That was 2018. And, you know, we're still trying to make a difference on these topics. And you're talking about, you know, race and and privilege. That stuff is just as relevant today as it was four years ago. Um, One of the things I said in passing, which I want to just come back around to, is this thing I said about oppressed people having a responsibility to our oppressors. That's really out of fashion and really shocking to a lot of people. But I want to underscore it because it's a really important principle that is at the core of what Nelson Mandela was about. It was at the core of what Gandhi was about. It's the core of what Dr. King and Fannie Lou Hamer and 
Ella Jo Baker and all those folks, a lot of the anti-colonial, anti-racist movements in the last century had this really powerful principle, which is we're just not going to become the people that we're fighting. They've been hateful and terrible to us. We're not going to be hateful and terrible to them. We're going to stick up for ourselves. We're not going to let ourselves be dehumanized. That comes to an end. But we're not going to dehumanize anybody else. And that was the miraculous genius of those movements, is that people who were being literally beaten and tortured, sometimes raped, lynched, sometimes burned alive, refused to become the, the, the evil that they were fighting, refused and said, we are literally fighting for our souls and yours as well. We're, we're trying to redeem uh, the oppressed and the oppressors. We're trying to free the jailed and the jailers. Now, this is a miracle in human history. That is not the norm. The norm for 10,000 years was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. And there's no reason in the world for subjugated people in the last century to have any other view. But a lot did. And we celebrate those people. We recognize those people. They're not all nonviolent. You know, Nelson Mandela had an army <laughs> called Mkanto Wazizwe, Spear of the Nation. He was in jail, not because he was a nonviolent guy, but like Gandhi was in, in jail for sabotage and, and, and planning an armed insurrection. But even with an army at his back, he refused to dehumanize the white South Africans. He, in fact, insisted that they be a part of his government when he formed it. Uh, literally put his jailer in his cabinet, uh, de Klerk, as his vice president, one of his vice presidents. This is the kind of stuff that will be talked about a thousand years from now if we have a human civilization. And I don't care how unfashionable it is in today's kind of cancel culture world where if somebody said something off color on a tweet 10 years ago, we're supposed to write them off and hate them. And, you know, why should we have any sympathy for the white guys? And, you know, they have everything, all that kind of stuff. If people who were being treated the way that uh, subjugated people uh, in Africa and Asia and Latin America around the world were being treated in the middle of the last century, if they could stand up with the kind of grace that they stood up with and try to redeem the soul of whole nations and not just stick up for their own narrow interests in the face of what they had to deal with, dogs, billy clubs, and guns, and everything else. I just think that we can at least honor them enough to try to have the same kind of approach. And I just wanted to say uh, I appreciate folks like Chelsea who are willing to uh, show some vulnerability, try something hard. And I think that those of us who are pushing from the other side in the other direction do ourselves, I think, our greatest service and do our ancestors the greatest compliment when we meet grace with grace, when we meet lack of grace with grace, when no matter what anybody does, we proceed with grace because who we are as human beings is not in the hands of our oppressors, it's in the hands of ourselves and, on, and for the benefit of our own children. So I hope to see you in the next episode. This is Van Jones for Uncommon Ground. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credible. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. 
Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for the show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkeen, Vanessa Redbert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jockerman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.